humans! It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio, live, <laughs> talking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie on lovely AM 950. How are you today? On Saturday, November 18th, I am thrilled, just thrilled to be talking to you. This is a live show. An exceedingly live show because I am, like, alive, thank God, and I'm just here talking with you. And, you know, I don't get to talk to my audience very often, although I've been hearing from you through emails, which is quite lovely. And so I would love to listen to hear from a listener or two or three or four um, today. I would because rarely do I get the opportunity to do a live show and rarely, rarely, rarely do I ever get to talk to an audience member. So, and, and it's free agency. You can call me. We can talk about anything you want to talk about. Okay. The number is 952-946-6205. I would love to talk with you. And what a show do we have today? Oh my goodness. I don't have a guest. So it's a talk, Ellie Krug talking head show. Hopefully that'll be all right with you. Um, but um, we're going to talk about um, a number of things. Uh, there's a great article in The Atlantic that Tom Nichols put out about how Trump just crossed a line with his, um, with his uh, word choice about targeting humans. Um, I'm going to talk with you uh, about a uh, book club uh, event that I went to at uh, uh, a church in Excelsior this week. I'm kind of a mind-blowing experience. I'm going to talk with you um, about a couple of other things, including about, you know, we've got Thanksgiving coming up and about the kinds of things I'm thankful for uh, here in this world. But I want to begin uh, today. I want to begin and talk about the state of affairs in America as it relates to transgender people. I do. I You know, I'm... <laughs> becoming increasingly, increasingly uh, concerned. Um, you've been hearing me if you follow this show and if you've heard me uh, before, you know that I, with some frequency I'm talking about what's happening with trans people. But let me give you a kind of a summary right now about where, where we are as it relates to transgender, non-binary humans here in America. So as of November 18th, 2023, there are, there are presently... Um, 21 states where youth um, ages from, you know, five or six all the way up to 19 years old in the case of Alabama, where 21 states where they are prohibited from getting gender-affirming care. That is like being able to see a doctor, to get hormones, to get puberty blockers, to do other things. Um, th that... And, you, and most of those states are in the South and in uh, the Southwest, um, but not all of them. And, uh, and, and, and those laws, okay, those states, what they've done uh, to prohibit trans kids and trans youth from getting gender-affirming care, in the case of transgender girls, means uh, that uh, they're going to grow up with this voice that you're listening to right now which I'm trying to soften, doing a little breathiness and a little, you know, <gasps> pausing like that. Um, but I don't do it always, and I don't remember to do it all the time. Um, and without puberty blockers, transgender girls 
are going to show up with this voice. And trust me, this voice is a problem. It is in my life. You know, I've talked about it quite a bit if you're a regular listener. And it continues to be a problem because it causes people to look at me in a way that makes me feel like crap, okay? I call it the look, you know? And it always reminds me, and I forget all the time because in my head this voice is about 50 octaves higher than what you're hearing. It always reminds me that I don't fit in. So that's what those laws are doing to transgender girls. To transgender boys, because they can't get puberty blockers, we've got transgender boys that are getting their periods every month. Uh, when they start to go through puberty. And that is a traumatic, traumatic experience for somebody who who identifies as male and they have that going on, okay? So that's, that's, you know, that's the psychological effects of these laws. Then, uh, so that's 21 states that have prohibited uh, uh, gender-affirming care for trans kids and trans youth. We've got another 23 states that prohibit transgender children, mainly trans girls, but also trans boys, but the target is trans girls, from participating in sports from kindergarten all the way, and I mean this, all the way through state university college senior year. So the entirety of your public education experience prohibiting trans kids from participating in sports. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I mean, there are a lot of people where sports is incredibly important to their identity, to a sense of belonging because you have a team, you know, you, and what being on a team helps you to develop is leadership skills and cooperation skills and all of that kind of stuff. Plus, you know, it's about conditioning and staying fit and all of that stuff. And um, yeah, those kids can't participate. It's because the government in the case that, like, as in the case of gender affirming care, the government has targeted this group of humans. I always come back to, can you imagine, you know, because in theory they're afraid that a transgender girl is going to have a, you know, is going to have a, um, a not a fair advantage as it relates to a genetic girl, a genetic female girl, and, you know, and, and God forbid, okay, God forbid, um, you, you've got that happens. And, um, and we have these rare instances where, you know, like in the case of Leah Thomas, a swimmer from the University of Pennsylvania, you know, rare cases where a transgender girl, transgender young woman goes and excels, okay, at, and that's, you know, the thing that everybody points to about how unfair it is and, and also about, in theory, what's wrong with transgender people generally, okay? So we've got the government targeting my community um, in, uh, in all of these states. And then there are, th- I, there are two or three states. Florida is certainly one of them. I can't keep track of all the others. Um, but but th- where transgender people can't use public restrooms um, that aligns with their gender identity. And, and instead, so if I went to Florida, which trust me, I am not going to go to Florida... But if I went to Florida today, I would have to use the men's public restroom. Yeah, that would be me. And if you've ever seen me or tune in to AM950 or go on YouTube, you know, I don't look like a dude. And so, you know, and I date men. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how that would work out. So, um, 
So, and that's, you know, all of this is the product of nearly 500 bills in this most recent legislative season targeting transgender humans. You know, and I mean, and there are a number of states where you can't get, if you're on Medicaid, states like Florida, like Iowa, like Missouri, if you're on Medicaid, um, the state's not going to pay for you to, as an adult, to get gender-affirming care, nor is it going to pay for gender confirmation surgery so that your body can be made to fit the way that your brain is. You know, so so that's this most past legislative season. That would be the 23 legislative season. I'm anticipating the 24 legislative season is going to be way worse. I am. I'm anticipating it. Because the, for some reason, you know, the Republicans, the conservative Republicans, um, just simply believe this is a winning issue for them. Now, uh, there, is a, uh, there was a piece out on uh, Aaron Reed's blog. You've heard of me speak about Aaron, E-R-I-N, Reed, R-E-E-D. Her blog is Aaron in the Morning, she's a transgender blogger and writer. Uh, there was a piece that came out yesterday um, uh, titled, uh, quote, a new poll, colon, 76% say trans care for trans youth should be decided by parents or doctors. Incredible poll, poll that was put out by, oh, Ellie, what is the name of the poll? Uh, uh, Data for Progress. Um, and uh, that poll showed that um, 54% of respond, poll respondents said that parents, okay, imagine this, parents should be able to decide whether their transgender child gets gender-affirming care. Another 22% said, all right, not the parents, but leave it up to the doctors. But together, 76% are saying the government, legislators should not be in the business of uh, telling trans kids or trans youth whether or not they can get gender-affirming care. Now, you know, and, and the, the elections that we just had a couple of weeks ago showed, you know, with the, with the number of, of Republican candidates that did not make it. I mean, my God, Virginia, you know, the whole legislature now is Democratic. Um, and part of that is in response to Glenn Youngkin's uh, attacks on trans, trans kids and trans youth. Um, even a Fox poll that came out in early 2023 said... Um, that 86% in that Fox poll said it was a problem to attack trans kids and trans youth. Only 1%, even in the Fox poll, uh, said that trans, transgender issues being woke on transgender issues was a major issue. The, the Republicans have just absolutely failed on this. I mean, the, the Moms for Liberty, they lost 70% of the races where part of that was attacking trans kids. So can you imagine here, okay, all right, can you imagine uh, that, you know, how, how wrong the Republicans have it, but they are so focused at attacking my community. They are so focused at it, and I, I absolutely believe the 24 legislative season is going to see a number of bills targeting me, Ellie Krug, as a transgender human where the bills will put in place, attempt to put in place laws that say that you cannot appear in public contrary to the gender that you were assigned at birth. 
All right, don't all right, don't get me started. Well, you did get me started. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back from the break, I'm going to talk about um, this piece that Tom Nichols uh, put out in in the Atlantic. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, one of the relatively few transgender hosts in the world. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Remember, this is live. Live, 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 live. I'm alive. And so do me a favor, will you? And give me a call at 952-946-6205. I'd love to hear from you. And by the way, when I just did that live, 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 live voice, you know what that reminded me of? This is not in my show notes. So we're just, because it's live, I'm just going where I want to. Um, It reminds me of The Grinch. Last weekend, I saw The Grinch at Children's Theater Company. Let me tell you, phenomenal. (laughs) It just, unbelievable show. And I'm just going to give you a little teaser. They throw a pie from the audience onto the stage, and it's caught like a basketball. Unbelievable, I, like a pie, like an apple pie. And I, that's all I'm going to say, okay? You got to go see the show. Fantastic show. Okay, all right, enough about that. <laughs> Thank you, Ellie. All right, well, listen, give me a call if you'd like because I'd love to hear from you. I want to talk now about this Tom Nichols piece that showed up in The Atlantic on November 16th. Uh, the, the piece is titled Trump Crosses... A crucial line. Now, I don't know if you know much about Tom Nichols. I love Tom Nichols. He's just a very analytical writer, but he's great. I mean, he just has all of these wonderful, great takes. I think that he had written a piece prior to the 2020 election, literally spelling out how that election was going to go off the rails and, and, and was entirely accurate about what Trump tried to do. So in this piece, uh, titled Trump Crosses a Line, uh, Nichols uh, explains how he has long resisted using the word fascism or fascist to describe Trump, okay? And he defines fascism this way, and you're hearing the pages all shuffle here. So he de- he, this is how he defines fascism, and I think it's a great definition. He says, quote, fascism is not mere oppression. It is a more holistic ideology that elevates the state over the individual, except for a sole leader around whom there is a cult of personality, glorifies hypernationalism and racism, worships military power, hates liberal democracy, and wallows in nostalgia and historical grievances. Fascism asserts uh, that all public activity should serve the regime and that all power must be gathered in the fist of the leader and exercised only by his party. That's Tom Nichols' definition of fascism. And he said that for for years now, he's held off calling Trump a fascist because he wanted to reserve that title, that he wanted to reserve that label for Trump in order to shock at the moment that, you know, 
that Trump crossed a line. And according to Nichols, as Nichols says in this piece, Trump crossed that line. He crossed that line on uh, Veterans Day with his with Trump's Veterans Day speech. And this is what Nichols writes. Quote, the, the events of the past month, and especially Trump's Veterans Day speech, confirmed to me that the moment, that is the moment that, that Nichols now needs to call him a fascist, has arrived. Quote, for weeks, Trump has been ramping up his rhetoric. Early last month, he echoed the vile and obsessively germophobic language of Adolf Hitler by describing immigrants as disease-ridden terrorists and psychiatric parents, patients who, who are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Nichols continues to write his address, Trump's address in Claremont, New Hampshire on Saturday, that would be Veterans Day, was the usual hot mess of random thoughts. But near the end of it, it took a more sinister turn. It's almost impossible to follow the speech, but you can try and follow the speech here. In one passage in particular, Trump melded religious and political rhetoric to aim not at foreign nations or immigrants, but at his fellow citizens. This is when he crossed one of the last remaining lines that separated his usual authoritarian bluster from recognizable fascism. And then he goes on to quote Trump, where, quote, said, we will drive out the globalists, we will cast out the communist Marxist fascists, we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country, on Veterans Day, this is Trump speaking now, we pledge that you will, that you will root out the communist, Marxist, fascist, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin, that's the phrase, live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat our, on elections and will do anything possible, legally or illegally, to destroy America. And, uh, and then, and then uh, Nichols finishes up by saying, as the New as the New York University professor Ruth ben Gayat later pointed out to the Washington Post, Trump is populating this list of vil- imaginary villains, okay, in order to set himself up as the deliverer of freedom. Mussolini promised freedom to his people too and then declared dictatorship. So, um, you know, and, and Nichols goes on to write, he goes on to say that... Um, uh, you know, what Trump is doing is normalizing, okay? He's normalizing how we treat people in, in, in this way. And, and, and he's, he's normalizing uh, this idea that, that, that people who disagree with him, okay, are lesser than human. I mean, he's been doing that generally as things, but now with using the phraseology vermin, He's done that, and he's come on, and it's just—it's just—it's un—you know—I—I just can't believe it. Now, Nichols goes on to say that you know, before when Trump was president, he was incompetent. I mean, as a you know, as an authoritarian leader, because he he couldn't stick to script. The people around him that he had at that time were were still people that took oaths to the Constitution and, and felt the need to abide by the Constitution. But this time around, Trump's got a whole lot of smarter people around him. And Nichols is concerned, as we all should be concerned, that this is going to be different, that this is going to be a different throw this time around. 
and that Trump is going to is actually going to get the dictatorship right this time. And so the one saving grace, as as Nichols writes towards the end of the piece, is that uh, Trump uh, hasn't been able to still, okay, create an effective movement that that is aimed at, at going after and eradicating groups of people. He's not been able to do that yet. Um, and in part, maybe because you know, we've got, a, I mean, my theory is we've got a blended America where we've got families with all types of people living in those families. But listen, a year from now, it could be all different. You know that. And that's why you got to be talking to people now about the need to vote, the need to vote anything but Trump and, and well, anything you need to vote for President Joe and nobody else. All right, I got to take another break. When I come back, I see I've got a caller on the line, um, my friend Nick. We'll talk to Nick when we come back. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. We'll be back in a second. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. Um, I think I have my friend Nick from St. Paul. Nick, are you there? I am here, Ali. How are you? Oh, Nick Ohm, it's so great to talk with you. Thank you for calling in. Oh, my gosh. What a beautiful day to be talking to you. Oh, well, thanks. So, audience members, you may recall that Nick Ohm has actually been a guest on my show a couple of times. He is the founder and president of Mosier, Inc., which is a company that does uh, a whole lot of stuff around training and recruiting for LGBTQ people in the business world. Nick, have I succinctly described what your company is about? You got it. You got it. Employment equity for everyone LGBTQ is the mission statement. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you've been running the first it started as a nonprofit. Now it's a for profit company. You've been doing this for a number of years. And Nick, I, you know, I'm glad that you called in. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you want to talk a little bit about what you're finding about anti wokeism out in the world? Because my audience has heard me talk about this a, a few times where, you know, I, I mean, Nick, I, you know, I haven't talked with you for a while, but I'll give you an idea of, of how it's impacted my business. Last year, mm. I, last year I did somewhere around 120, 125 talks or trainings. Um, last year in June, because you know this, in June it's Pride Month. Everybody wants a LGBTQ speaker in Pride Month. So in 2022, I did uh, 22 or 23 talks in the month of June, Okay. This year, in 2023, I'm going to come in at about 91 talks for the year. So that down by more than 30. And, um, I'm, and in June of this year, I did five talks <laughs> compared to 22 or 23 last year. Wow. So, yeah. So what are you finding? Well, definitely there's been a drop that I've seen in my business as well. Um, not as dramatic as that, but I think I'm trying to piece it all together because there's all these different factors at play here. I think the anti-wokeism stuff and particularly all of the anti-trans stuff has made 
that a much more difficult conversation for people that want to open up in their organizations, and we can talk about that. Um, there's the broader macroeconomic situation that absolutely I think is playing into this as well in terms of just discretional budgetary uh, right. op- options for people are down. Um, and I think we're, we're three years, almost four years, you know, three and a half years since, you know, George Floyd. I think the overall attitude and appetite for diversity, equity and inclusion work and conversations, I think there's real fatigue. Yep. I think people haven't seen results in the last three and a half years and people are starting to go, well, what, why are we doing this? What's, what's the deal here? Right. Well, you know, my I mean, my personal theory is, is that, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, you know, all kinds of organizations were like, we're going to, you know, we're going to put the money towards it. We're going to get we're going to we're going to foment change, you know, real structural change. And, the you know, and the angry one or two people that were resisting that in the wake of George Floyd, they were like, well, shut up. Too bad. We're you know, if you're angry and you don't like it, well, you can leave. I think today, okay, three and a half years after George Floyd, now, you know, an organization says, well, we're going to do some work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then the angry person, which is usually the angry man, okay, the one or two gets angry. And now companies are like, oh, no, no, we don't know how to deal with this person. No, we better not do the work. I mean, I think it's just flipped entirely on its head. So... Oh, absolutely. And I think organizations, I think everyone's idea of what real change meant in 2020 um, was a book club and doing a training and, you know, having a few conversations. And I think as I'm trying to go out in the world and try and sell companies on real change, which to me involves policy change, changing the way you um, you do recruiting, the way your procedures, the way the culture of your organization operates. I think people rightfully so, they say that, that sounds really hard, really expensive. And it just feels like everyone's kind of white knuckling it through life right now in a way. And it's, yeah. just, it's just, we're just trying to get through this. And um, DEI is about rocking the boat and people just don't want to rock the boat right now. You know, and, and of course, um, as you may have just heard with uh, my piece about um, uh, Trump and fascism, uh, f- that uh, piece that Tom Nichols wrote, um, my great concern is if 2024 goes horribly election-wise, I mean, I could see a national law outlawing DEI work. I mean, I could just see it. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Or, yeah, a repeal of existing civil rights laws. I mean, it, it really, um, this could get really bad really quickly. And I'm trying to tell companies about, I'm doing a public talk in a couple of weeks to share a lot of the things that you've been sharing and to try and get companies to realize that, you know, we basically have a one-year window to shore up some of this work and to raise awareness around voting and all these things um or or this this could be it this could be the end of the conversation yeah yeah you know and that sounds so dire nick but i mean you're on the front lines i'm on the front lines and um i just now on the other hand nick i'll tell you um 
uh, you know, uh, two weeks ago, tomorrow, I was in St. Francis, <laughs> Minnesota, mm-hmm. you know, in the middle of the woods, speaking to 40 people on a Sunday night doing gray area thinking for them. And they loved it. They just absolutely loved it, you know, and um, which I did not get to on my show notes here. But I mean, just on Thursday night this week, like, you know, three nights ago, um, I was at uh, in, at Excelsior at a, um, at a at the Excelsior United Methodist Church. Nick, they did a book reading from my book. OK. Wow. Do you know how many people showed up for the book club? 80. What did they get? 80, 80 people. Wow. 80 people showed up. And the vast majority of them were older folks, okay? Like we're talking 50 and older, all right? I mean, there were a couple of people in there with their wheelers, you know, <laughs> you know? And, um, and they were so welcoming. And they were so, I mean, I had some people with, crying afterwards, wanting to hug me. And, and not that it's, this is all about Ellie Krug. The reason I'm telling you this is that, is that notwithstanding what our political leaders are saying, all right, or our business leaders are saying, people, I think the vast majority of people are hungry. They, they, they don't want this division. They want everybody to be, you know, cared for. They want everyone to have compassion, you know? Or, so... It's just, mm-hmm. it's just so frustrating, of course, right? No, I hear you, and, and I'm, I, I see the same things in my work, and it is. It's like, how do we energize people who are in that boat, like those 80 people, to, you know, to take more action? Because it really is this vocal minority of people in the country that is taking over. Um, they don't represent what the vast majority of people want. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I just, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just, it's, it's kind of scary, of course. Right. (laughs) It's scary. And, um, and I've been thinking about, you know, when I'm on LinkedIn and social media and I, I see other diversity and inclusion teachers, educators, and people. And one of the big things I think we need to talk about is I think we've made our movement inaccessible to people. Um, I think a lot of, I think you're a pioneer of just, and the reason I look up to you is the way that you have this huge circle of compassion around the work that you do. And there's an on-ramp for everybody, but there's a lot of people, in my opinion, and this is kind of controversial, but a lot of people doing diversity and inclusion work who are more interested in being right and more interested in, you know, proving that they know the most or that they've got some kind of solution, um, the on the on ramp into the diversity and inclusion space is to me getting smaller, and that has created the opening for this this anti woke mob to kind of <laughs> come forward. And these people in the middle are saying, "Yeah, you know, I never really, I never really felt included in the diversity and inclusion space." Um, so I, maybe what they're saying about you know anti wokeism, maybe there's something to that, or maybe there's. So I right. think we got to look at ourselves here and, and be really careful about things like that. Well, you know, and and thanks for mentioning my work around, you know, compassion as being the core. I mean, it is the core message. Compassion for all humans, you know, is the core message of certainly just about everything that I do. And Nick, I think it's really hard 
to, to yeah. take issue with compassion. I mean, I think that it's incredibly difficult to argue, hey, I don't like you because you're a compassionate person. I, I just <laughs> think it's really difficult to marginalize somebody over that. So, you know, and then and I'd like to say that I was intentional about all of that and, you know, and, you know, forward thinking. But no, it's just it's really true. I mean, I do believe in compassion for all humans and compassion for ourselves, that we need to have compassion for ourselves. And that does just seems to so resonate. I mean, you know, Nick, I, I, I trained a very conservative law firm the week before last. We had, I don't know, 50 or 60 people there, you know, and I, you know, I have this exercise in gray area thinking, I ask people to self-identify you know, what do you, what identity do you want to be known for? They've got 19 different choices, you know, skin color, socioeconomic status, religion, education level, LGBTQ plus level, all of that stuff. But out of the, we got to it out of the 50 or 60 people, probably 50 of them, okay, like 90% of them picked one identity. This is, no, this is a conservative law firm, okay? And the identity they picked was compassion, and the, the, I love it. And that's the, that is the, it is going that way everywhere I go, regardless of whether it's big city or small, blue or red, whatever. When asked, what do you want to be known for? It's not about socioeconomic status. It's not about education, not the stuff that you would think or, or skin color. It's about compassion. I want to be known as a compassionate human, you know, and you and I have talked about how my footprint is so small. You know, I, I would love to be able to get that message out across America, you know, that this is what I'm finding everywhere I go that we want to be known for. But, you know, I don't think that I'll ever get the footprint any bigger than what it is. But you, my friend, you have gotten your footprint much larger. <laughs> You've been able to do it very strategically. So I'm very proud of you for that. Well, I, I wouldn't sell yourself too short here. I think um, we are marching towards a, a spiritual awakening in this country at a rapid pace. And I think, I don't know, your message is just more needed than ever. And um, I don't know, there, there, you could go viral at any minute, I think, with the work that you're doing. I think it's just a matter of timing and um, your your work. To me, it, the reason I was drawn towards it, because it, it just it feels medicinal. It feels a healing element to to what you um, bring with your message and and a lot of people feel spiritually sick right now um, so the more people that I don't know start to get it this, this feels like it could be a different kind of contagious viral thing with this <laughs> compassion stuff <laughs> well Nick we're gonna have to end it on that okay I've got to take a break and it yeah, was yeah. It's really great. Thank you for calling in. It's so wonderful to hear from you. And offline, we got to get together and have some lunch, okay? We'll do it. Love you. All right. Love you too, Nick. Thanks so very much. Caller, our listeners, that was Nick Alm, uh, the president of Mosier, Inc. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, thankfulness. Thanks. Bye-bye. And we're back. All right, I want to talk about thankfulness, but before I do that, 
I do want to mention this piece that came across my feed yesterday um, out of The Guardian. It's a it's a piece titled by The Guardian staff. I, I don't have a particular person who wrote it. Um, titled, quote, Miracle Dog Returned to Family After Staying with Owner Who Died Hiking. I don't, did you see this story? This is a story about a Jack Russell Terrier named Finney who back in August went uh, with his owner, uh, guardian, I would prefer to say guardian, uh, Rich Moore, who, is, who was 71 years old. Um, they lived in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. I've been out to Pagosa Springs. I know where, exactly where that is. And, they, and uh, Rich and his dog, Finney, this Jack Russell Terrier, decided to take a hike through the San Juan Mountains. Um, unfortunately, um, it appear, Rich apparently had a heart attack, and he went missing. They, they tried to find him and Finney when he didn't come back home, and they couldn't find, his, they couldn't find them. And so, you know, but, but on October 30th, somebody who was out, a hunter who was out, discovered Rich's body. And next to Rich was Finney, Jack Russell Terrier, still there, still with very protective of Rich's body, um, guarding him. Uh, Finney had lost uh, half of his weight. There's a picture of him about and laying on the, you know, in a, in a home with. I mean, went back to the wife of Rich, Mrs. Moore, and and she took Finney home. But you can see him with the his ribs just absolutely showing. I, and you know what? This, I mean, my God! I mean, I I live alone, and I I have this innate fear of dying alone and dying in my house, and nobody discovering me for weeks. Trust me, I do have that fear. Okay, and I'm no, I know I'm not the only one right now who has that fear. All right, but you know what? I read that story, and I thought of my boy Jack. You know, and and it just. God, I love my boy Jack. And so um, I read the story in last night, which Jack usually sleeps in the mudroom. He does not usually sleep in my bedroom because he's 90 pounds. And he, once he's on my bed, it's, it's, he sprawls and there's not much room for Ellie Krug, okay? But last night after I read that piece, you know what I did? I said, Jack, come on. Come lay on the bed tonight. I did. I petted him. He just laid next to me, and I fell asleep. He fell asleep. Yeah. So, all right. Thanks. Thursday is Thanksgiving. Okay? And, you know, we do all this stuff. And interestingly, I got an email from a, from a listener who asked about how to be, how to be supportive of a, of a LGBTQ relative that they are going to see uh, over Thanksgiving, and uh, wanted asked me if I had some ideas about how to be supportive. And my response back was, and this is my, we don't hardly do this anymore. My response back was, write this person a note, personal note. Remember that stuff that we used to do, pen and paper, even going so far as stamp an envelope? You know, remember that stuff, okay? Um, but I said, write a note to let this person that they, that they matter to you, that you love them, that they're worthy, that you care about them, that you're there for them if they ever need an ear um, or a shoulder and, you know, and uh, that you believe in them. 
write a note and give it, you know, kind of, you don't even have to like make a big deal of it. You can just, as, you know, you're, something's going on, you can just pull it out of your purse or out of your pocket and hand it to the person and say, hey, read that later on, okay? I just wanted to, I was thinking of you and I just wanted to give you something, okay? And why is it that a note is so valuable? Well, because unlike a text, like how many times are we scrolling? Scrolling to try and find the text? Or that email that we mysteriously got deleted, okay? I knew it was here somewhere, all right? A note card or a letter written, you know, by another human using ink um, lasts forever. It does. You can get it. You can put it on, you know, the edge of your, you know, your breakfast nook. You can put it on the edge of your desk. You can put it in, in your drawer, the, the bureau of your, in your bedroom. And you can come back to it time and time and time again. You can do that. And it'll nourish you every time you go back. I, I've got some notes I keep going back to. Oh, especially one from my youngest daughter. Oh, yeah. Something she wrote, you know, 10 years ago at this point. Yeah, 10 years ago that note is. So, all right. So what am I thankful for this Thanksgiving? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm relatively healthy. And, oh, hold on. You just heard me knocking on wood about that one, okay? I'm thankful for my dog, Jack. Yeah, it's been a long road. He is such a good boy, though. But he's a pain in the butt a lot as well. But I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for, like, just as I talked to Nick, 80 people coming to a book club about my book, my book, and having read it, my God, and then caring about me. Oh, the, the hugs that I got afterwards, the, some of the words thankful for that. And there was a woman that helped organize that. Her name is Sarah Johnson. I'm thankful for her. I may end up talking about her because she did some other things to make me think about legacy. Um, you know, I, I'm loved. I've got my brother and a sister who love me. I've got my two daughters, of course. I've got my best friend, uh, other than my brother, uh, Thap, um, who um, has been with me. We've been best friends now for 53 years, ever since eighth grade. So I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for you, my listeners, because, you know, you, you do, you call, you, you listen, you go online, you listen to the podcast, you email me. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for Dan, who is my producer today, who's done a great job and who I really, really appreciate. And so, as you get to Thanksgiving, all right, please take a moment and just sit back and find one big thing to be thankful for and grateful. All right, till next time, Ellie Krug, over and out. <laughs>